This morning's Old Testament reading is from the book of the prophet Isaiah. In the 26th chapter, the opening four verses, I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation. Its walls and ramparts open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord himself is the rock eternal. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. Our New Testament reading is about faith. In the 11th chapter of Hebrews, the opening seven verses, I invite you once again to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith, our ancestors received approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain's. Through this, he received approval as righteous. God himself giving approval to his gifts. He died, but through his faith, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken so that he did not experience death and he was not found because God had taken him. For it was attested before he was taken away that he had pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would approach him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah warned by God about events as yet unseen, respected the warning and built an ark to save his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness that is in accordance with faith. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. This morning's New Testament reading includes some verses which may be less familiar to you, just as they were to me. As I consulted the Revised Common Lectionary to review its appointed scripture text for worship, the non-gospel New Testament reading was from the start of Hebrews 11. But interestingly, well, interesting to me at least, uh, the verses suggested were not consecutive. Uh, the editors of the guide suggested verses 1 through 12, but omitting verses 4 through 7. So, of course, I had to take a more careful look at these forbidden verses, and I share them with you this morning. As a minister, it can get somewhat routine if I find myself reading and rereading just a rather limited subset of Scripture and preparing sermons based on those texts. Now granted, the gospel accounts of the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ don't get old. 
and are so foundational to our faith that they can hardly be overread or overpreached. But they can get so comfortable that new insights and inspiration can be harder, at least for me, uh, to come by. You may well feel that way listening to the sermons that I'm preaching as well. Well, this morning we'll have what I think is a, a fresh look at a text from the New Testament as the author of this letter to the Hebrews is reminding his audience of some of their ancestors in the faith and the examples that they set. Now, I suspect that it wasn't entirely meant to be a history lesson, though the people and the events recalled certainly had historical significance among the children of Abraham. All the accounts referenced in these verses from Hebrews are contained within a span of roughly four and a half chapters in the book of Genesis. The first of these characters is Abel, who was the second-born son of the man and woman who were first, Adam and Eve. And one of the first things that the Bible tells us about Abel is that he was a keeper of sheep and that he made an offering to God of the first and best of his flock. God had regard for the offering made by Abel, we are told, here in Hebrews, as the author recounts this sacrifice that Abel made to God, it is deemed to be acceptable in God's sight. This is, then, a mark of one's faith, at least according to this authority in the early church. And it's nothing new. The idea of giving back to God the first and the best has been a practical manifestation of one's faith for a very long time. And it was, and it still is, acceptable in God's sight. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would approach Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. The second of the Old Testament figures lifted up by the author of Hebrews is Enoch. Now, to most of us, he may seem quite an obscure figure from antiquity. To the Jewish contemporaries of Jesus and his disciples, though, I think he was probably a bit less so. In those days, the expectation for the coming of the Messiah had been building for some time. And within a hundred years or so of the ascension of King Herod the Great to his throne in Jerusalem, there were a handful of self-proclaimed messiahs who came to prominence in the region. And, and it was said that Elijah would return as a sign that the messiah was soon to come. So people were on the lookout for a sign of Elijah as they were Enoch. For Enoch too had disappeared from the face of the earth he had not been claimed by death, and folks thought that he too would come back. The role of the story of Enoch plays into the story of Hebrews by way of this genealogy that occurs in the fifth chapter of Genesis. It outlines for us all the generations of Adam's lineage right on down through Noah, and along the way we are introduced to the oldest man in all of Scripture, you probably remember this from your Sunday school, Methuselah. Well, you 
You may have remembered his name, but did you remember that his father was Enoch? The Genesis text uniquely describes the end of Enoch. Unlike everybody else who gets mentioned along the generations, we are not told that thus all the years of Enoch were 300 or 500 or 800, and then he died. Instead, we read that Enoch walked with God, attesting to his faith in God and his obedience to him. And then the Enoch story abruptly ends with these words, then he was no more because God took him. To the Hebrews, it was clear that this story was communicating the fact that that Enoch was a special person and one who had received a reward for his uprightness. And then, and then there was Noah, who continues to be a familiar figure to Jews and non-Jews alike. His crowning achievement was the building of the ark and the stewarding of that sanctuary to safety in the flood, thereby rescuing not just the lineage of Adam and Eve, but also that of untold species of animals. But the author of this letter to the Hebrews is pointing readers to another profound theological truth that's contained in the Noah story. We're told in the Genesis account that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Everyone else, though, was less so. In fact, things had gotten so bad in that day that as it is described in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. Wow. So... What did God decide to do? He would wipe the slate nearly clean and start afresh, except for the one who had found favor with God through his obedience and his righteousness, Noah, the faithful one. So the Lord gives a special task to this special man. Build a boat to these specks, he was told, and he did. He did just as the Lord commanded him. And The author of Hebrews points out what great faith Noah must have had to build this vehicle to escape the destruction to come long before the storm clouds had ever produced their first hint of rain. And that's where the author of Hebrews is going with all of this, and that is to faith. The faith of the ancestors, yes, as he writes, indeed, by faith our ancestors received approval. But more importantly... Even than this, the author wants to discuss the faith of the people who are being addressed in this letter that he's writing. The early believers in and followers of the way of Jesus the Christ. The author defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For as the ancestors had not seen God face to face, the people who were reading this letter both then and now have to ground our belief in faith and not sight. We have to make a choice whether to believe in the unseen or not. Many people want proof. That's understandable, I think. 
given that we want proof of a lot of things in this life. Perhaps even more so than ever before, since science has now advanced so far that many things that were once only theoretical have now been observed and quantified. We have proof. As a race, we've taken the mystery out of many things, but still, the great mystery of faith remains. What can we learn about faith from the ancestors mentioned here in Hebrews 11? Well, for starters, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would approach him must believe that he exists, as the author puts it. You can't, after all, intentionally approach someone you don't know. That was the mission of the author of the letter to the Hebrews, the author of this letter to the Hebrews, and all the other New Testament books. It was an introduction to someone who most of these people had never met. These were a bunch of evangelists introducing the world to God in Jesus. They knew that first, folks had to know him. Then they could have faith in him. When Paul famously went to Rome and stood there in the Areopagus, he noticed an altar to an unknown God, and he set about telling the people there about Jesus so that this God would no longer be unknown to them. Now, Paul, whether he's the one who wrote these words in Hebrew or not, knew that whoever would approach God must first believe that he exists, a truth that has been the case in the days of the Old Testament and has stayed the case even into our day. It is equally true, though, that we usually do not approach someone whom we do not want to know. It's been said that an atheist can't find God for the same reason a thief can't find a policeman. They'd rather not look for one. So we have to have some desire for faith. Yet even that desire for faith in God is a gift. And it isn't something that we can manufacture on our own. We can and we should nurture that faith and add spiritual fuel to the fire, but it will be invisible forever by any aside from God. Yes, it can be evidence that is, after all, what we have here in the stories of Abel and of Enoch and of Noah, folks who did things that demonstrated the unseen faith that they possessed. And it is just those sorts of things, that way of living, that the author of the letter of Hebrews is recommending and encouraging us to. We may not feel all that special. We may never find that our deeds of devotions are recorded in any book, holy or otherwise. We may not have to make a dramatic stand against the world, but our faith should prepare us for anything. The great 19th century British preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, once observed that faith is the refusal to panic. The world certainly provides us with a bunch of reasons each and every day, but the one with faith refuses the temptation to get caught up in it all. 
If God is for us, who can be against us? This rhetorical question lies in the middle of Paul's letter to the Romans. And I think it also lies in the heart of this expose on the faith of God's people down through the ages. Having faith is, as noted, a gift. Having faith is also, I believe, its own reward. Yes, I do think that God is pleased with the faithful and the stories of these Old Testament figures lend credence to that theory. But their lives and ours are also immeasurably enriched by a strong and living faith in a strong and living God. It empowers us for the living of these days. It provides hope and comfort and peace in a world that wants us to buy into anything but hope and comfort and peace. Our faith rewards us in the present as well as in the future. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. For now, we see through a glass, but dimly. But one day, when we're farther along, my brothers and sisters in Christ, this will not always be the case. There will come an appointed day when we will see face to face the one whom we have faith in. Now, we know only in part then we will know fully, even as we have been fully known. And for that we may truly say, thanks be to God and amen.